We were arrested by the state of Mississippi, sent to the penitentiary. One night we were singing freedom songs and the sheriff came in and said that we must stop and we refused to stop. We continued singing. At the gin, Mr. Hurst shot and killed Mr. Lee. There were three Negro witnesses to this killing and they were all intimidated and into saying that Mr. Hurst killed Mr. Lee in self-defense. We continued singing. The sheriff testified that he had received uh, telephone calls warning him of, of uh, as he said, blood on the mountain. We continued singing. The time has come in the safeguarding of this community and the responsibility of this community to the rest of the nation for if they are trained agitators and revolutionists here, they need to be run right out. We continued singing. I hope to live to see when everybody have equal rights. We continued singing. Evocative voices. For me, voices reviving half-forgotten memories. Memories rediscovered in an attic. You tend to be told on TV antique shows to clean out the attic and who knows what treasures will be revealed. The sort of thing, too, that your granny might have advised. Well, this grandfather, as a result of such an exercise in the year 2000, came across not exactly treasure, but a box of reel-to-reel recording tapes lying in the garret for the best part of three decades. They were smothered in dust, they were damp, and very liable to snap if played in the machine. And yet they proved to be remarkable survivors. Sure, the quality of sound had deteriorated, but by no means entirely. Indeed, some of the material had been originally recorded secretly without sophisticated equipment, so that too affected the sound. The tape stated back to 1963 and time spent in the United States in pursuit of a variety of callings, farm labourer, singer, unqualified anthropologist and freelance journalist in the print and radio media. It was the latter calling that led to a journey to the south to observe and to some extent get involved in the upsurge for civil rights then sweeping the country. The sound recordist was the late Diane Hamilton to whom I was formerly married. For her it was a new type of assignment in that her previous experience was confined to collecting music and song in the folk tradition. The city of Knoxville in Tennessee was the starting point of this journey, partly due to direct personal contacts, but also because it had become a focal point in the civil rights struggle. The headquarters of the Highlander Centre, an integrated folk school with outreach programmes throughout the South, was situated in Knoxville. In the 1960s, one of its main objectives was the encouragement of black citizens to register as voters, despite oppressive pressures not to do so. Although it had a turbulent history since its foundation in 1932, Highlander enjoyed the support of many influential Americans, ranging from Coretta and Martin Luther King to Eleanor Roosevelt. It therefore caused considerable national interest when a workshop run by the centre in a mountain camp some miles outside of the city was raided by the local sheriff's department, with the participants being arrested at gunpoint. It was quite late. It was around three in the morning. We had to drive back 40 miles, and we were... Uh getting ready to go to bed. Some people were just relaxing. Uh, people were talking. A couple people were making snacks. 
and then uh, the uh, a bunch of deputies, uh, most of them in uniform from the sheriff's department, uh, there were ten and all, just came in after having watched us for a while. Uh, I was in the main cabin at that time, and they just came in and started looking around and uh, just sort of ordered everybody out of the cabin. Nobody was allowed to get uh, get anything. Nobody. Some people had to go on their bare feet. They had guns. They had tear gas guns and shotguns and pistols, and they were aiming these about, getting people out of the tents and getting people out of the cabin. Uh, girl asked for a warrant, and uh, officer said, "We'll worry about that later." Something like that. And, and somebody asked if there were any charges. Uh, and they said, we'll worry about that later, too. But their line was that there were 40 mountaineers down on the mountain who were coming up to rout us out and kill us. And uh, so this was the pretext they gave. They said they were taking us away to protect us. And then they literally forced us out there. We had no choice. They were using their, pointing their guns at us, and there was obviously no choice but to go. Highlander was founded by its director, Miles Horton, born in 1905 of impeccable lineage according to the code of the white southern establishment. Recently there have been efforts to intimidate us right here. Windows have been broken, threats of burning and bombing. But uh, today we're running a series of workshops throughout the south as we had planned. The only program that's been interrupted has been the uh, work camp on the mountain. We are soldiers. workshops or short sessions of a week or a month where adults are brought together for residential training. They live together, they learn together, they sing together, they share experiences, and they learn from experts uh, uh, who've had uh, uh, sort of done research or had actually experience in the field of, of their particular concern. These people are selected because they're already leaders in their own community, so they bring with them a maturity and understanding that uh, wouldn't necessarily be found in regular academic uh, uh, educational programs. Right at present, we're primarily concerned with the problems growing out of the struggle on the part of the Negroes for full citizenship. Unfortunately, there's still a large number of Negroes, particularly in the Deep South, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and Louisiana, who've been deprived of the opportunity of an education. Many of the adults uh, cannot uh, read or write, and very often in these states which have 
deprive Negroes of these opportunities. They are voting requirements having to do with literacy. They, they have to, a person has to read a section of the Constitution, for example, in some states uh, to the satisfaction of the local white election commissioners before they'll be allowed to vote. The opposition has intensified uh, since 1954. Uh, it's true that Highlander had, for many years, been one of the few and maybe the only uh, uh, integrated school, thoroughly integrated school, where it's completely integrated in the, in the South. But the opposition wasn't too strong until Negroes started doing things for themselves. As long as Negroes were not uh, uh, moving towards democracy at an accelerated rate, People paid no great attention to Howler. We were considered a little different. We were considered radical. Uh, the charge of communism was brought uh, in the early years of the school because we were integrated in this country. Anything new is considered communist. Integration is still, according to Governor Barnett of Mississippi, who testified recently in uh, Congress, integration and communism are synonymous. Miles Horton died in 1990. Two ideals in particular molded his entire life, education and democracy. He was also quietly proud of the fact that it was at Highlander that an old Methodist hymn had originally been adapted to eventually become the unrivaled anthem of the civil rights movement. Indeed, by the late 1960s, the chorus had been taken up as far off as the streets of Belfast and Derry. The man who took on the brief of defending those arrested at the Highlander camp was a local attorney called Ed Lynch. He himself was raised according to the ethos which dominated Southern society, but he was the type of lawyer who sincerely believed that every defendant deserved the best possible defence, even if this should prove harmful in the future to his legal practice. If it must suffer, then uh, it'll suffer with my, with my knowledge uh, ahead of time, uh, the sort of thing that I was getting into, I felt very strongly that anyone who's uh, accused of any kind of crime is entitled to be represented, and uh, this is the thing that I was defending in this case. These people uh, um, actually were uh, at the farthest point in Blunt County from civilization. They were half a mile from the nearest uh, uh, neighbor, and uh, they were, they were raided at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the sheriff testified that he had received uh, telephone calls warning him of, of uh, as he said, blood on the mountain uh, for some two weeks before he decided that it would be a good time to go raid them at 3 o'clock in the morning. He arrested, and, uh, arrested 29 people and even put, uh, even put two babies in jail. The first thing that Ed Lynch said to me when we met was to ask whether if by any chance his surname could be Irish. 
In fact, there seemed to be a number of families in the Appalachian Mountains who somehow had settled in that part of the world as a result of the post-famine diaspora, although in terms of religion or cultural background, they had completely lost contact with their roots. More numerous were those mountainy families generally described as Scots-Irish. In other words, the descendants of dissenters from the Ulster counties who migrated before the American War of Independence. During the war between the states, many of these were known as Southern Yankees in that they tended to support the Union rather than the Confederacy. But that's another story. I was introduced to Ed Lynch in his capacity as an attorney, defending a group of people who had been arrested by men in uniform, the official uniform of the local sheriff's department. However, in Tennessee, as in other states, there were men who donned another sort of uniform and were prepared to go to extreme lengths to halt the whole process of integration. Men in a sinister uniform, which might be described as totally unrevealing in terms of hiding the identity of those who wore it. They called themselves the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. As a lawyer and a southerner, I was interested to learn what was Ed Lynch's attitude towards such people. Mr. Meek... Um Frankly, I'm, uh, I'm opposed uh, to the Klan. I'm opposed to it uh, for a number of reasons, primarily uh, due to the fact that the Ku Klux Klan is and has for a number of years been on the Attorney General's list of those organizations uh, uh, which believe in, in un-American activity. I didn't know this until um, uh, yesterday, uh, after you called me about this interview, I contacted uh, Mr. Raymond Anderson, who's uh, been an acquaintance and, uh, and friend of mine for some 15 years. And Mr. Anderson, I learned a couple of days ago, uh, is the state grand dragon uh, for the Ku Klux Klan. And I, in talking with him, he gave me a, a booklet, booklet that points out some of the things that the Klan believes in, and they, I find that they're uh, quite violently anti-Catholic as well as being uh, uh, anti-Negro. It was through Ed Lynch that an interview was arranged with the aforementioned Mr. Raymond Anderson. However, as it turned out, the Grand Dragon chose to be somewhat economical in imparting information regarding the Klan. In regard to the request of the Irish journalist for an interview with me as Grand Dragon of the United Clan, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan Incorporated, I will make this statement. After reading the questions they were interested in asking, I feel that no good purpose could be served by such an interview by a foreign press, as I feel that this is a local and national problem and, of not, and not of any international concern. The questions posed were in the most part of a confidential nature. However, if the foreign press is interested, they should contact Imperial Wizard Robert M. Shelton in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I'm sure he can answer any questions they might be interested in asking. Alas, logistics did not permit a rendezvous with the Imperial Wizard. However, surreptitious attendance at an enclosed gathering of white supremacists did take place. Unfortunately, the clandestine nature of the operation was reflected in the recording quality of both the singing and the oratory at the event.
treat people and how people should treat me as I didn't know before. And um, I love the whole entire staff at Highlander because I could never tell what the work and they have meant to me. It takes the young people to carry on this work, look like mostly they can stand it better than us older people. <laughs> but we held up fine because each summer we had eight weeks of schooling, you know, and of course the first summer they didn't do so bad, but the last summer they were just awful. <coughs> you couldn't sleep for them at night, they'd run around and watch and try to catch something, but the main thing they had against the school was the Negroes being there. I knew a boy, John Lewis, he had went through with quite a lot. They uh, tortured him in so many ways. They burned him and put him bombing fluid on him and they threw him in jail just so many times I wouldn't know. In bombing fluid, that's what they put on people when they're dead. Mm. Yeah. One girl, I don't remember her name, but I do remember that they set her hair on fire. Yeah, they threw hose pipes and everything else on water. Just did them every way. It could be done to scare them away, but they just kept going. In West Tennessee, they had to move away and they lived in tents for about three years. Mm because they wanted to vote. Mm. And all they knew was to raise this cotton, you see, and they just stayed in the tents and taking what was sent in to them yes. by different organizations until the president taken over, and finally he sent them food. <coughs> At one time, they didn't get enough food. They were, they were really hungry. They were really hungry. Yeah. It was 13 families. It was the saddest thing you ever saw. One little baby was starving to death. We made two trips there. It was such a long piece from our house. I guess it's around 500 miles. <clears throat> and we couldn't hardly make it in a day and night. And we made the two trips. And we'd give up what clothes we could get, give to us and what we could afford to buy second-handed, yeah. you know. And yes. Carol we could carry in one car. And people from several towns went there. It's about five... Uh, missionary women and five preachers went down and carried three or four carloads of food and clothes from Nashville. It was the people at Highlander who suggested that it would be necessary to head on to the Deep South to get a broad perspective of the civil rights movement in action. So the journey continued, from Knoxville through Nashville, down through the northwest of Alabama, and on to the Mississippi Delta. In geomusical terms, you might say from the heartland of bluegrass to that of the blues.
You got them. You got them. You got them, You got them. But one that law is ready. You got them. The community of Greenwood, Mississippi, lies 82 miles north of the state capital, Jackson, with a population of under 20,000. Since the early 60s, there have obviously been a lot of changes there, but then it seemed a fairly sleepy sort of town, in which many of the streets were actually named after letters of the alphabet. Yet in terms of civil rights momentum, Greenwood was a hive of activity. An office had been set up in town by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, generally known as SNCC, with the specific object of promoting voter registration. Reaction from local segregationist elements, including the agencies of law and order, had been aggressive and at times bloody. SNCC was undoubtedly one of the most radical of the civil rights organizations operating throughout the South. Apart from political education, Volunteers were only accepted after a most rigorous training program, more or less based on a Gandhian approach to civil disobedience. The ultimate aim of this was to ensure that no volunteer, if subjected to violence, would react to the situation in a violent manner. The office was staffed by young men and women from many parts of the United States, but also by local Mississippians, both young and of more mature years. I'm from Charleston, Mississippi, originally. And I came here in Green, to Greenwood uh, in August of 1962. I began working here on voter registration. Now, in course, Greenwood is similar to other places in Mississippi, although uh, we aren't presently working in a lot of areas in Mississippi, but they are the same in a lot of respects. There's so many bad stories about police brutality in Mississippi. One knows hardly where to begin telling about these things. As for myself, I was born and reared in Mississippi, and some of these things uh, just seem like common practice. And I realized that, that these things would shock some of the least experiences of mine would shock other people to death. I mean, I probably would walk along and see it and maybe, well, just think that this was another thing that happened because uh, the police here and around Mississippi, it's, you don't have to even be participating in any type of civil rights activities whatsoever. Uh, they'll just attack you. But not all the student volunteers were from the black community. I'm a uh, white southern native, and I've lived 21 years in the south. And I can see that the things that are happening now, the, the civil rights movement amongst the Negroes, and a smattering of whites, both from the north and a, a few from the south, is the most active thing in American society today to make it truly democratic and to restore some content to the ideals of, of American democracy. And as a southerner, I feel especially an obligation, a kind of guilt, which uh, for, for having lived so comfortably and, and, and easily in the South for 21 years, this is, this is part of the reason I'm here. And the rest is my interest in, in changing the whole pattern of American society and to, to restoring some, as I say, some content to the ideals of American democracy. I felt an increasing 
desire to, to attempt to change the system of calculated deprivation, which pervades America. I couldn't stand to, to go any further into this system without at least trying to change it. Not only were our people physically stopped from normal life, they're, they're subjected, both black and white in the United States, as the system stands now, to a, a, a way of life which is only half a life. This I want to change. One night we was working late about 12 o'clock and we had carried people down to the courthouse to register that day. And that night about 12 o'clock a police car drove up in front of the office and we heard a dispatch radio going on downstairs. And he stayed there about five minutes and then he drove away to a nearby corner. And five minutes after he had gone, a car drove up carrying about eight white men very well armed with ropes, chains, bricks, shotguns, and pistols. And we knew that if they ever entered the office that their intention was to kill us. And so we escaped out of this office, the second, off a second story building, over the roof of a cafe and over the roof of a house and down a TV antenna in order to escape this lynch mob to save our life. In Gaston, the uh, state troopers are there. They have uh, Prada as a cow shock, as a stick sort of similar to the baton, which has about, I couldn't say exactly how many voters, but it is used to shock people in order to keep them from going limp on the policemen. Then at night, they will come into your cell and take you out of the cell and use this Prada on you. And it leaves a burn and or either two dots, which it, by the time they keep you in jail, don't let the time they keep you in jail, by the time you get out, the uh, everything will be gone. You know, it wouldn't be any uh, scar, anything, you know, in which you could get a case from, anything like that. And uh, then the beatings, they are, the state troopers, they are profess professionally trained beaters. You know, they don't hit you in the face or anything like that. They beat you around the body where, and then they'll keep you in jail a day or two. And by the time you get out of jail, everything be, you know, you'd be gone down. You wouldn't be swollen or anything. You couldn't get a case in that way either. coming from Charleston, South Carolina, where we'd been to a workshop on citizenship, education, and voter registration. And uh, as we returned using the trailways, buses, we stopped at Winona to use the facilities there, and six of us got off to do this. Well, when we went into the restaurant, the uh, local police chief and one of the state highway patrolmen denied us use of these facilities. So uh, when we sat down, they came out from the rear of the restaurant and tapped us each on the shoulder with the little billy club and said, get up and get out. But when they got to me, I asked them if they didn't know it was against the law to put us out of there, you know. I was thinking about the recent ICC ruling in interstate travel. But uh, the police chief told me, he said, that ain't no damn law. He said, you get out. So we went out and stood outside 
discussing what happened to us a few minutes and then we felt that we ought to get as much identifying information as we could so we could make a report of what happened. So the patrolman's car was standing right out there. So um, I thought maybe we ought to get the number off the car. We went around there and as I was writing this down, the police chief and the highway patrolman came out of the restaurant and the police chief told us that we were under arrest. And uh, when we got down there, they, uh, Police chief said, well, y'all just raising hell all over the place, you know. Because they thought, you know, we were having a demonstration. And this is what they kept insisting when we got inside. So uh, anyway, when we got in there, we, they were asking us questions or talking about something. I don't remember what. But whatever it was, I would say yes and no, you know, like you would ordinarily. And... Uh, this, there was this blue uniformed officer who brought Miss Hamer, you know, local patrolman, who's, who uh, was offended by that. You know, he asked me if I didn't have enough respect to say sir to him. You know. So I asked him what he said, and he said, I said, do you have enough respect for me to say yes, sir? So and I told him, well, I didn't know him that well, you know. And he looked very funny. He looked very, looked at me very funny. So. And the police chief said, well, we're going to lock y'all up. Five minutes after that, one of them came to get me out of the cell. He said, you come on out here. He said, uh, you're the boss of these people, you know. So I said, no, we don't have any boss, you know. So he said, well, you come on out here anyway. And on the way out, I met this 15-year-old girl, June, who was being put in the cell where I had been and she was crying and she was bleeding from her face, you know, from her face and neck. And uh, so they put her in where I had been and then they told me, you know, this man told me to come on out here and he said, stand here. So I'd stand there and he said, well, move on over there, you know, move on over there. So I'd move uh, over where he pointed. So I finally, where I stopped was right where she had been because I could see blood on the floor, you know, from where she had been beaten. And uh, most at that time, all of them turned away from me. You know, none of them were facing me. So I said, uh, I took a minute to tell them, you know, that I wanted them to know that we didn't hate them, you know, for what they were doing. So uh, he uh, just hauled up and hit me, you know, just without any provocation. And uh, so then another one, came up and asked me, well, weren't y'all having a demonstration? You know, and I would say no. And the same officer who wanted me to say sir before came up and said, can't you say sir, you know? And uh, I wouldn't say it, you know. And it kept going on for, I guess, off and on about five, 10 minutes. Why wouldn't I say sir? And they want to know, who do you give your reports to? And I said, uh, you know, we send them to the federal government. <laughs> And they said, who is that, Bobby Kennedy? And I said, no, the federal government, you know. Can't you say no, sir? The, one of the white prisoners kept egging him on. He said, I haven't heard her say yes, sir, yet, you know. So that they just kept beating me about, you know, about that. And then I guess after 10 minutes, and I wouldn't say it, and they, you know, they just stopped. Keep on talking, keep on talking, talking on the freedom line. What actually?
actual dangers were involved in spending time out in Greenwood in the summer of 63, probably the unknown hazards were the most threatening. As a song of the time put it, the assassin's bullet, it knows no colours, it comes a-winging through the night. However, for me, it was a much less dramatic incident that actually caused me to feel the most acute sense of foreboding. I was driving a van with five passengers, three men and two women, all SNCC volunteers, to an outlying Black Baptist church where the preacher had given permission for leaflets relating to voter registration to be handed out to members of his flock. En route, we met a patrol car coming from the opposite direction. It immediately U-turned and started following us. Had I done something wrong? You bet, said the front seat passenger. A white guy driving four known black agitators. You've sure done something wrong. Just don't break the speed limit and don't go too slow either. Next thing, the patrol car was joined by another and another and another. I muttered to my companions that we must look like a sort of bizarre funeral procession. Not that levity was much in my thoughts. The palms of my hands were sweating on the steering wheel. And then they all just went away one after the other. We continued to the church, did our business, and then stayed on for the service. Afterwards, there was an adult baptism ceremony. An immensely tall man stood in the middle of a wide river and introduced new members to the congregation by means of total immersion. To share in that cultural and indeed spiritual experience was something never to be forgotten. Wheel on right on that well, I'm going to sing Jim Brent, on that show. Well, I'm going to sing, get on that show. I'm going to sing for my Jesus, talking about my Jesus evermore. Well, I'm going to build on that show. Herbert Lee was the father of some nine children here in Mississippi. He was a Negro farmer who was working with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. One day last year, Mr. Lee drove down to gin some of his cotton, and he was met at the cotton gin by a Mississippi State Representative by the name of E.H. Hurst. Mr. Hurst had earlier threatened Mr. Lee because Lee had been involved in voter registration activity. At the gin, Mr. Hurst shot and killed Mr. Lee. There were three Negro witnesses to this killing, and they were all intimidated and into saying that Mr. Hurst killed Mr. Lee in self-defense. Later, one Negro came to the Office of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and said that he would be willing to tell the truth if he could get some protection and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee people called the Justice Department and asked if the Justice Department could give some protection to this Negro witness who wanted to tell the truth. And the Justice Department said that they were sorry, but they couldn't give any protection and that they could only enter the situation after some violence had been committed.
Some of these SNCC volunteers were well-known people in media terms or went on to be so. John Lewis, who originally chaired the group, for example, he who had experienced torture and been doused with embalming fluid, later went into mainstream politics and became a Democratic congressman for Georgia after a more equitable system of suffrage had been established. Most of them, however, were not exactly high-profile individuals and tended in time to return to their lives and communities, communities experiencing change, change to some extent resulting from their efforts. But one man in particular was very different in this respect. He was in his early 20s then, and not actually American-born, but originally from Trinidad. He was very charming in manner, obviously charismatic in character, and driven by conviction. In time, it was conviction that led him to travel a revolutionary rather than reformist road, even if this meant parting with old political friends, especially those belonging to white liberal society. He was to become a figure of national and international attention in both his private and public life, his prominence in the emerging black power movement, his marriage to the world-famous South African singer Miriam Makeba, his move to Guinea as the protégé and confidant of the president Sekou Touré, his close involvement with the political philosophy of pan-Africanism up to his death in 1998. It was this urge to establish a personal African identity which eventually moved him to take the name Kwame Ture. But back in those Mississippi days, he was still known as Stokely Carmichael. The story I'm about to tell is what happened in the state penitentiary, Mississippi. We're arrested for walking into a bus station, Supreme Court, which is the highest court of the land, made a ruling that said that everyone has the right to walk into any bus station if it's an interstate bus station. And we did, and we were arrested by the state of Mississippi, sent to the penitentiary. One night we were singing freedom songs, and the sheriff came in and said that we must stop, and we refused to stop. We continued singing. He said, if you'd sing, we're going to send you to solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is a dark hole, about six by nine, just pitch black, except for three little holes, about pinhole size, the bottom of the door, which allows ventilation. It's six by nine, and there's one hole in the middle where one uses for latrine. When we kept singing, opened up the cell doors, and packed 26 of us in there. It was hot and stiff. We stayed there for about two days and two nights. We still didn't stop singing. At the end of the two days and two nights, he opened up the door and let us out. We continued singing. After we were let out of solitary confinement, he put us back into our cells. And we kept on singing. Took our mattresses away. The mattress was supported by steel. They had control of the temperature. They dropped the temperature, and if you placed your hand on the steel bunk, it was so cold you'd have to remove it for fear of ripping the skin off of your hand. The temperature remained like this for four nights and three days. And for four nights and three days, none of us can sleep. We all had to walk around in circles. We still didn't stop singing.
I have never had the opportunity to return to where these events took place. To do so, I'm sure, would amount to an intriguing adventure. In 1963, when the tapes were recorded, it was a time of great historical significance. Their re-emergence happened at a period when I myself was coming to terms with the implications of impending retirement. To be quite suddenly confronted with part of one's distant personal history in so vivid a manner wasn't an altogether comfortable experience, though possibly a valuable one. That said, I am nonetheless grateful that on an autumnal afternoon in the year 2000, it was decided to investigate hidden mysteries lying in wait to be rediscovered in an attic. I hope to live to see when everybody have equal rights.